0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Allison McGear. You'll hear the doctor talk to us about the coronavirus. She is an infectious diseases specialist. Richard Kerland, immigration lawyer, will be with us on the extradition hearing for among Wanju, which is taking place in Vancouver. Privacy lawyer David Fraser on Harry and Meghan's demand for privacy in Canada. Former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford joins us on, let's call it, Trump versus Trudeau. Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch, and they pointed out, that the Trudeau cabinet withheld names of possible ethics commissioners from the opposition parties in parliament. As well, Dr. Gordon Holden, he's the head of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, with a perspective on what may be going on in China as far as the coronavirus is concerned. Joining us on the program is Dr. Alison McGeer, director of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology Unit at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. In 2003, Dr. McGeer contracted SARS while on the front lines of public health care and response to the SARS outbreak. Dr. McGear, thank you very much for the time. Pleasure, Roy. The, uh, let me start, if I may, with the World Health Organization having decided not to declare it an international emergency last Thursday. Should they have done that? Is that? A, is, would that have been a good thing or maybe not so much?
2: No, I don't actually think it makes any difference. The 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 Public Health Emergency of International Concern was a, it it seemed like a good idea as part of the package of global communications that was put in after SARS, but it, you know, and its purpose was to allow the World Health Organization to make recommendations to people primarily not to issue travel bans, okay, primarily to to control the the fearful reactions and and keep them science-based. Um, and to try to get additional funding where it was needed to some lower-income countries. And it, it actually turns out not to be working very well. So <clears throat> I think, you know, we don't know whether they didn't declare it because they didn't think it would benefit anybody um, or or they didn't think or, or they weren't worried about this. Obviously, the World Health Organization is worried about this. Um, they're working hard at, at supporting people who are trying to control it. So it's not that they don't think it's a problem. It's just that they didn't think that <clears throat> declaring it which is it's a spe- very specific set of things that come into play, they didn't think those were going to help.
0: Now, I'm sure you remember the SARS issue uh, far better than uh, y- y- those of us, the rest of us who lived through it, because you also contracted SARS. But when you look at what's happening now, and the questions being asked by many people is this, why was this patient allowed, um, maybe okay to be allowed on the plane, but he exhibited symptoms, apparently, on the plane. So how is it possible that the patient would be allowed to uh, get into the sort of the general society in Toronto and not be flagged somewhere along the way at this particular time? Is that an issue of concern to you?
2: Uh, no, it probably isn't. My my guess is what happened was, you know, he clearly, you know, got the message about what to do if he got sick, and he called people, and he did all the right things when he got here. So my guess is one of the, one of the problems with the start of any infection is that you know sometimes it starts fairly suddenly but frequently it comes on slowly so my guess about what happened was that he maybe wasn't feeling perfectly well when he got off the plane but there wasn't anything specific and he might have just imagined that he you know hadn't had any sleep for 16 hours and the seat was really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. um and he didn't recognize it as the beginning of illness but when the public health investigators came to talk to him and went over things and went back to it people looked at it and said, you know something, I, the fact that he wasn't feeling well at the end of the flight might have been the beginning of symptoms. So we're going to be precautionary and we're going to investigate those people because it's hard to believe that he would have, you know, not reported. And no, and of course, he was been screened by Canadian border agents and they didn't notice he was ill, right? She so wasn't obviously ill. Um, and, and the fact that he didn't report it that day, but then the next day called and said all of the things that he was supposed to say so that things happened is uh, i suspect means he didn't know he was sick when he got off the plane
0: okay dr mcgear what uh, what's special what is distinct about a virus being a coronavirus?
2: well you know it, it, it's sort of neither special or not special you know it's a new virus and and coronaviruses evolve more quickly than other viruses so so we expect now to see more new coronaviruses than new other kinds of viruses, and so that's why this is a problem. We also expect to see them from China. Uh, the, the mixing of a large number of species in wild animal markets is, is a risk for coronaviruses. You'll notice that China has now banned all wild animal markets um, in response to this. Uh, so it, it's what we m- might expect, as the most common new virus. Um, And we really, we're still waiting to see what the disease due to this virus looks like. We know it's a respiratory infection, but we don't know how severe it is on average. We're, the Chinese are obviously detecting the more severe cases, because that's what you do at the beginning of outbreaks. Um, But it, we we still don't know how many non-severe cases there are, and that makes a big difference to how dangerous this virus is.
0: Um, viruses uh, are, are known to uh, to adapt uh, to what's around them, and uh, and 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 I've I've been doing a fair bit of reading just on the on the virus issue over the last couple of days. And uh, viruses learn how to move more quickly from uh, human to human. They, uh, you know, far more about this than I. I'm kind of walking out on a plank here above a tank of sharks. Potentially by saying talking about things I don't really know much about, but let me ask you: Is is it possible this 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 particular virus is going to uh, adapt to its circumstances and and adapt to moving from humans uh, human to human more quickly than the than the uh, medical labs and the and the medical community will be able to c- keep up with it?
2: Yeah, you know the one of the things that happened with SARS was that the SARS virus actually evolved. From the time it first appeared in humans in December 2002, until it caused outbreaks around the world in March of 2003, there was a a substantial change in this in in that virus. Most non-coronaviruses can't do that, and one of the tentative pieces of good news. Again, I, I say tentative because you know we've known about this virus for less than a month, so it <laughs> makes it hard <laughs> to be sure about things. But so far. When you look at the sequences of the virus, that's not happening with this virus, and that's good news.
0: Now, this has nothing to do, and I've received a number of emails from listeners who wanted to know whether this has anything to do with the concerns about antibiotics no longer being as effective necessarily as they have been for the last number of decades. And this is, this is not anti- about antibiotics, is it? No, not at all.
2: No, you're right.
0: What about antivirals? How are we doing in, 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 uh, in developing antivirals?
2: Well, you know, people are working hard at them, but it, it, it's much more difficult to develop antivirals and antibiotics, and uh, there are a couple of studies of antivirals um, currently running or in preparation against the MERS coronavirus in Saudi Arabia, um, and there is a study running in Wuhan now uh, testing one of those antivirals against this new coronavirus, Um so we'll see, but I, I don't think we can count on um, being able to develop new treatments for it with any speed.
0: Dr. McGeer, what do you want answers to? If uh, if you had uh, an, uh, the opportunity to just pursue what you specifically want answers to on this, on this particular virus, and you probably do, what do you want answers to?
2: Well, you know, so the, the most important answer that we need at the moment is can you control the spread of this virus with public health measures? Um, the Chinese are doing their very best to do that. And and all of us as a global community are now working with them, albeit on a much smaller scale, to deal with patients who might come into our country and to make sure that it doesn't spread within our countries. Uh, and there's a, there's a list of viral characteristics that make it possible to control and not possible to control. And we just don't have that data yet so everybody's working really hard on control um but the the key question is is it going to work or not so that's the first question second question is um how severe is the illness again we come back to it's really hard to judge at the beginning of an epidemic because there are so many reasons why people do or do not get tested and there's limits to how many tests you can do so we don't at the moment really have a good idea of how severe this virus is. And that, of course, makes a big difference to everybody. And the third question um, that we're learning a little more about is, you know, where do we think this virus came from um, uh, and how did it happen? And it really does look like it originated in in wild animal markets. But I think there's still some questions about um, whether it was just one wild animal market or whether it's something a little broader. Um, And that would help tell us whether this is, like SARS, a sort of a one-off event that um, if it gets under control will mean the virus is eradicated, or whether it's something that is present and, and an ongoing risk that this virus might reappear even if we can control its transmission now.
0: All right, I have one more question for you. At what point would you become really concerned about the situation as it stands? And I ask that because the president of China... Xi Jinping has said that he has, quote, grave concerns, end quote, about the situation in China. What would raise your concern level to that level?
2: I, I think the, you know, I, I think everybody has grave concerns about the situation in China. I think the, um, we we don't know yet whether the new measures that were instituted this week in China are making a difference. And, and that's normal because, remember, after you're exposed, there's a Ford probably four to eight day period before you get sick. Um, And so once you impose new measures, you have to wait through that period. During that period, you're going to expect to see cases go up. So we're not going to know until next week at the earliest whether these measures are working. If these measures are not working, you know, then, and and China has really, um, uh, you know, instituted draconian measures, very hard on the people who live there, um, and the people who are ill are trying to provide health care there, um, which which we should all be grateful for. OK, that I, I think a lot of people in China are suffering in an attempt to benefit um, all the rest of us in the world. If that transmission cannot be controlled, then, you know, this will be a new human virus and we're going to have to learn to live with it, which we can definitely do. Um, but then that raises a whole series of new questions about. Uh, whether it's going to spread around the world and and how that's going to happen and how severe the disease is. The moment we're really just all waiting um, and hoping that these new measures in China will control the transmission.
0: Dr. McGeer, thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciated.
2: Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Dr. Alison McGeer, the Director of Infectious Diseases Epidemiology at the Unit at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. The uh, Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing continues in Vancouver, with the United States calling for the extradition of Hmong to America, claiming that she committed fraud and that the uh, charge constitutes double criminality, so breaking the law in both the United States and Canada. Richard Kirtland joins us, immigration lawyer in Vancouver. He's advised both the federal and Quebec governments uh, over his career. Richard, always great to talk to you. Um, so Canada is in a bit of a excuse me, a bit of a pickle with the with the, with the Hmong case. We're either going to upset the Americans or more upset the Chinese, who are already upset at us.
3: Exactly. Uh, the latest is double criminality. For double criminality, the crime has to be both a crime in the USA and Canada. The slam dunk is that Iranian sanctions, not a crime in Canada. So that legal spaghetti falls off the extradition wall. What's remaining is fraud. Fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud. What's fascinating is that the fraud charge has to have one key element, the risk of economic deprivation. Now, that risk of economic deprivation, the Crown says, is attached to the reputation of the bank. The argument, very creative, is that the bank internationally has to be perceived as following the rules or its reputation is harmed. Following the rules outside Canada will mean respect for Iranian sanctions deployed by the United States. So the Crown creatively brings into the Canadian fraud context that extraterritorial point about Iranian sanctions. There's a problem, which the Crown followed up almost immediately. The Crown told the court this bank, by the way, has engaged in financial dealings with Libya, Myanmar, Sudan and happens to be under deferred special prosecution agreements. In addition, the same bank has paid recently a 100 million dollar fine for fraud, over 700 million dollars in fines and penalties for violation of banking rules, anti-money laundering statutes, you you name it. So, how does Ms. Ming's conversation with the bank create that economic risk? The court asks the Crown, Are you tendering any evidence for this risk of economic deprivation? Crown goes, mm, No. Is there any evidence of economic uh, deprivation for the bank? No. Then the court Uh, posed one that that just came out of the blue. The court asked the Crown if the court should mechanically use the analytical framework for fraud, even though the core component is not uh, a a crime or a law in Canada, uh, all the time, and offered up the suggestion of slavery. If slavery was the underpinning of the conduct, mm-hmm. the same way Iranian sanctions were underpinning the conduct, should a Canadian court be concerned?
0: Yeah, so Richard, uh, time has gotten a bit away from yeah. us today. So in, in about 30 seconds, what, what's going to happen here?:
3: Well, and that's all uh, the time I have. Next. Uh, what happens next is uh, the court has taken the double criminality decision under reserve. Uh, by saying no double criminality, Ms. Meng goes free. The court may wait until June when the charter argument comes in, and that one's real simple. Right. The court ordered immediate arrest. They waited three, four hours, so okay. the court can say charter violation, and she also goes free in the
0: summer. Okay. So we will talk more, more to, more to come, much more to come, and I thank you, my friend, for joining us from Vancouver. Always a pleasure. Keep well. All the best. Richard Curland. Uh, on the uh, the story, the this, uh, story that's dominated headlines in this country for the last number of weeks has been, of course, Harry and Meghan. Do we still call them Prince Harry? I, I guess. No longer their royal highnesses. They're still the uh, Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Anyway, they're already angry, furious with paparazzi in British Columbia, claiming that the paparazzi uh, stalked the couple and that unauthorized photographs of Meghan and their son Archie were taken and published. So the question becomes, what privacy rights do Harry and Meghan have under Canadian law? And what privacy is possible in a world filled with closed-circuit TV cameras? And uh, where your mobile phone tracks your movements 24-7? As soon as you turn it on, it it tracks you. Uh, And I tweeted earlier today, and this is a question that I'm going to put out there, and it's simply this... If you're standing on a street corner and you're shouting at people, look at me, if they then look at you, you don't really have much to complain about. I think David Fraser is going to probably take exception with what I just said. Privacy lawyer, McInnes Cooper in Halifax, one of the very best in this country, also the originator of the Privacy Law blog. David, thank you for the time. So can we just start with that fundamental? If if you're, if you're If you're generating attention... Yeah. By the actions that you've taken, uh, and much of it depends on who you are or relates to who you are. and And then people start paying attention and uh, pay more attention than you p- maybe want. Uh, is there a line there that uh, that that's you know, definitively says you asked for the attention, so now you're getting it
4: well there's, there's I expect there's probably a line uh, the the question is always going to be where where do we draw that line, or where do we where do we find that line? And where do these how do these principles come into play in this discussion about uh, harry and and Megan? Certainly we have laws that allow people to sue for unreasonable invasions of privacy, and usually they're predicated on being highly offensive to a reasonable person and but we don't have any magic rules. we don't have any black lines that say absolutely this is an invasion of privacy and that is not. And so it's always looked at as as a bit of a continuum and and certainly it's been well-known in, in law and discussions about privacy, that if you go out looking for attention, you can't really blame somebody for giving you attention. And it, it's, it finds itself in U.S. defamation law pretty strongly. Kind of public figures have much less protection than others, the, the notion being, again, that you've voluntarily stepped into this virtual spotlight uh, and you can't then complain about what happens within that spotlight. But what I think is, is particularly interesting in, in this case, and if, if any legal action comes out of it or follows the, the threatening letters sent by the Sussexes or the, the palace to the British media, is going to be trying to figure out those sorts of nuances. And, and in this case, obviously, Harry was born in the spotlight, but they're moving to Canada is, in fact, because they've decided and have exp- expressly said, we don't want to be in the spotlight anymore. We are we're kind of recoiling retreating to a private life and financial independence and will no longer be working royals and so to what extent does that assertion of privacy rights and, and specifically trying to step out of the spotlight how does that affect the conversation
0: mm-hmm. well I, I question whether he wants to be out of the spotlight he still wants to be in the spotlight but he doesn't want to be in the royal spotlight any longer and uh, I, I david isn't there isn't there an argument to be made you created this excitement you created this interest in your move to canada so live with it and i'm going back to the initial point that i made i know
4: well it it will be very interesting to follow this because i i agree with you in principle in a number of ways but i but i disagree in some other ones certainly the the resignation from kind of official royal duties uh of an individual who was in line to the throne is certainly newsworthy and I think moving to Canada is also newsworthy but six weeks from now will them going through a drive-through in Victoria be newsworthy and I'm not sure that it really will be and I think that uh, it, it, it will also be interesting to watch how they intend to become financially independent. If it's taking a, a desk job or working at a call center, well, then uh, I think that they have a claim to kind of <laughs> the sort of expectation of privacy that goes along with being a private person like that. If it's advancing a lifestyle brand like Gwyneth Paltrow or something else or, or Martha Stewart, well, then, of course, they're, they're, they are still at least keeping one foot in the big spotlight. And it might, in fact, still be the royal spotlight.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But yep. when, when the courts are going to look at this or if they, if they end up having a look at this, there's a whole bunch of questions that are going to be asked, one of which is, is what I said earlier about them specifically saying that they want it out of the spotlight. Also, what sort of expectation of privacy you have, as I said, really depends upon the circumstances. And British Columbia privacy law, in fact, deems forms of surveillance and, and other provinces have similar laws, forms of surveillance to be an invasion of privacy. And one would think that having a whole bunch of photographers camped out in front of your house that's a form of surveillance, and particularly if they if they follow you around. And privacy is one of the, the only areas of law that I know of that is designed to protect feelings and a particular kind of feeling, the feeling of being surveilled, the feeling of being creeped out. And just imagine a scenario in which you're in a public park and you would say that in a public park you have a very limited expectation of privacy. But you look around and you don't see anybody in that park. You believe yourself to be alone, maybe other than your two dogs, your your baby child and your two security guards. But you you think you understand what observations are taking place, and that Mm -hmm. informs your expectation of privacy. And then somebody steps out of a bush with a really long camera lens. Now, that's going to be jarring and upsetting. Is that unreasonable? Is that highly offensive to a reasonable person? I think we're going to be looking at it through the lens of a Canadian judge uh, who hasn't been brought up in uh, kind of paparazzi and royal culture and whether they would say that, that crosses the line or, or that combined with that same photographer or others besetting the house and looking through the windows with those long lenses, which you and I, if that, if that were to happen to us, would be an unreasonable invasion of privacy. Mm-hmm. So when you throw all those circumstances together, uh, I think it, it really will press the boundaries. And Canadian courts have never had to deal with paparazzi and celebrity cases like this.
0: Oh, well, I was about to ask you whether there's any precedent. What's the closest that that, that there might be, as far as a precedent is concerned, that a judge might be able to use or reference well, to?
4: We, yeah, we really don't. Not, not that it's parallel to this and, and not that engages the freedom of expression issues of, of journalists and photographers. So there, there are cases related to landlords putting in hidden cameras in, in apartments and things like that and people eavesdropping on conversations. Um, and then these laws, of course, most commonly are, are being used in connection with large data breaches, which are of a completely different character. And so, so in some ways, we're starting at first principles. Now, those principles are written into the law, but they talk about things about being reasonable and highly offensive, which are very subjective, both to the people being observed or surveilled or who, are, who claim a privacy invasion, but also going to be unique to the, the judge uh, who's going to have to hear these, the, hear these cases. And uh, and it would be interesting, and I would hope that if it does end up in court, we'll end up with a pretty good lawyers on either side kind of arguing the issues, so that so it gets really good consideration, and then uh, uh, hopefully thoughtful reasons and a decision from a judge to to help us understand better about how this law is applied. And I would expect to be one of those things that might end up. ill, So the better decision that you have at the first at the trial, ultimately the the, the better decision and consideration you'll have on appeal.
0: It certainly speaks to the times we're living in, doesn't it? Because, uh, as I said in the beginning, as, and as you've talked to us about on the air in the past, we live in, a, in, in an environment now where you almost should assume that there's a camera on you. If you're out in public, there's a camera watching you.
4: Yeah, oh, absolutely, and and so in a whole bunch of and that. Ways, and, and I'm know, sorry. Let me just. I'm sorry. Just more,
0: just to finish yeah. the just to finish the thought. I might turn around and say, well, hold on, that's a, a, a violation of my privacy. I never give you the right to take a picture of me walking through a parking lot.
4: Yep, and uh, <laughs> I would I would cheer you on from the sidelines as you made that uh, as you made that claim because certainly many people have observed that that our privacy, our expectation of walking through the world without being observed it's being whittled away measure by measure by every single cheap and small camera that's being deployed all over the place mm-hmm. because they're so cheap. And then you think about the amount of digital exhaust that we leave every time you use a debit card or a credit card you're, everywhere you go your mobile phone is chirping to the to the phone company letting them know exactly where you are and all of that information is available for the police if they get a search warrant or a production order yeah. and so certainly it's uh, one it, it's very difficult to live off the grid let's say.
0: Well, I appreciate the time i it'll be very interesting, David if this does in fact go to court um, what they're going to charge uh, wh- where the boundaries might be, because whatever a judge rules, I would think because you, you know there's no real precedent here, there would be a trickle down effect for the rest of us in a, is, is that yes or, or no to that
4: no I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right I, I think that the, the principles that would come out of that would would inform. A bunch of other cases that that really don't have anything to do with celebrity. They would inform decisions related to stalking, related to online harassment, uh, a number of a number of areas. Kind of the we don't have a lot of uh, privacy case law when it comes to these sorts of civil claims. And so the, the the more decisions that we have by thoughtful judges, the better we understand at least the legal parameters. Uh, and I, I think that it's important also that, that individuals and and uh, folks like yourself uh engage in and foster conversations about this about how, how is this a canadian value is this a pan-canadian value mm-hmm. quebec privacy laws are much stricter when it comes to these sorts of things much greater recognition that even if you're a public figure you have a right to a private okay.
0: life well we will uh, we'll keep an eye on this one most uh, definitely because it does have an effect on each and every one of us. Plus, it's a fascinating story. And again, I'm going to go back to the point that I made earlier. If, if you're if you're on a street corner uh, yelling, look at me, look at me, and if I look at you, then you run to the police and say, he's invading my privacy, then I'm going to have something to say about that. David, always great. Thanks thank you thank much. much.
4: <laughs> Anytime. All you the best. Right.
0: David Fraser, one of the very best privacy lawyer in uh, in Halifax at McInnes Cooper. He is um, the originator of the Privacy Law Blog. Brian Peckford joins me, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. We were going to be uh, without the Premier for a couple of months, but he's going to be with us uh, for a little bit longer. And so I wasn't going to miss the opportunity to have um, uh, Mr. Peckford join us on the show. There's a lot to talk about, and I know that... uh, Brian, I know you have lots of uh, lots of thoughts about many issues, and of course, you blog at peckford42.wordpress.com, 42 Before we talk about Mr. Trump, before we talk about Mr. Trudeau, before we talk about the most recent blog, I'd like your thoughts because you were a progressive conservative premier of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. You you dealt with uh, prime ministers of different parties and representation. What do you make of the current situation, the current reality in the chase for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? Ron Ambrose has said no. Pierre Polyev has said no. Peter McKay has said, I'm in. Um, what do you make of, uh, of of this of this race?
5: Well, I, uh, first, first of all, I have to say I, I, uh, I played basketball and I was a basketball coach and I saw Kobe Bryant play on a number of occasions as I have most of the major basketball players of the last 20 or 30 years or more and uh, like you I'm pretty shocked about what has happened and uh, it's pretty hard stuff to uh, to digest and to process um, um you know in the in the middle of a pro <laughs> football game on now a basketball game coming on later this afternoon and uh, you know it's uh, and the ma- the man was so well known um and it was so talented that, um, yeah, I have got to just uh, comment a little on that. No, I understand it's it's hard, it's difficult to, to absorb, the, isn't uh, it?
0: It's difficult political
5: oh, stuff. Um, I I I've been reading uh, over the last week or two, like you and like a lot of Canadians, about what's happening in the Conservative Party of Canada, and it's now announced leadership. And I must say, I, I have a lot of uh, a lot of problems with what. Going on, I have problems with the rules to start with. You got to have $300,000 in order to get into this uh, leadership race. I'm I'm not so sure I can uh, I can talk about process something. I'm not sure I can process that. You got to have $150,000 in order to get the names of the <laughs> members of the party. So before we get at the candidates at all, I have a problem with the way this thing is set up. As far as the candidates go, there's uh, it, uh, at this point it, it doesn't look like there's. Uh, only mr. McKay is is there uh, that most people would not know most of the other names I wrote them down this morning Uh, uh, you know the majority Canadians wouldn't know them at all Uh, wouldn't know the name was no name recognition so I I think the party has got got some problems
0: what's the usual format I was wondering about that the other day and I was gonna look it up and I didn't and I should have it had the same thought you had three hundred thousand to become a to get into the ring yeah. that's a that's a serious amount of money is that to is that the party saying uh, if you can't afford it then you can't well, afford I you, it.
5: It, 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 it it certainly
0: uh, is that the way it should moves be moves
5: in that direction as far as I'm concerned I mean I, you know my basic situation uh, understanding of all that would be okay you're a, a, a citizen of the country you're in good standing uh... in the country you're a member of the conservative party of canada uh... you have a desire to run for the leadership and you want to put your name forward uh, i'm not sure there should be all that much more that uh, is needed i mean so you can't get everybody on a stage? So you can't get everybody in front of a TV camera at the same time? Are these are the kinds of things that are going to govern? Whether, in fact, a citizen of this nation can run for a political party? Oh, my gosh. I don't like that at all.
0: Let me ask you this. Uh, what goes into, and I know we have other things to talk about, but I, now that we're talking about this, I have questions for you. What goes into the decision-making to... A, run for political office, but then to contest the leadership of the party and uh, either become a premier or prime minister or both. When you had to make the decision to run for political office in Newfoundland, and then you made the decision to, I'm guessing, that you made the decision to run for the leadership of the party, what's the process that's involved? Who do you talk to? What takes you over the top?
5: Well... In, in my case, and I guess it would uh, would operate uh, similarly for a lot of other people, I was a high school teacher in rural Newfoundland, and uh, I was obviously uh, interested in what was going on in my province. I had uh, gone through high school and set up the first uh, student council in our high school. Uh, then I had gone to university had got involved in uh, student politics at the university and served on the student council at the university. And So then when I went out high school teaching, I continued to be interested in what was going on around me, and as I got more and more uh, involved in it, uh, or knowing what was going on in the community and in the area in which I lived, I became uh, somewhat disillusioned, and and this finally led me to say, well, you know, if I'm I'm that disillusioned, if I'm that much uh, engaged in this thing, and I'm getting quite upset about what's going on, I, I guess the next thing for me to do is to do something about it or see if I can do something about it. And uh, so, therefore, I put my name forward to run as a candidate in the riding in which I resided. That's how I got involved in, in originally in, in provincial politics or in politics uh, like that, elected politics like that. And then when I got involved and got elected and became a minister and then, uh, you know, experienced how the system worked, Uh, I thought I could do a better job on on making the system work uh, than those who I served with and who I served under and so on, and thought that I could make a contribution. I was keenly interested in a lot of the issues to the point where, once again, I put my name forward. Going through that process, you talk to your friends, especially your very, very close friends, very, very close friends, and your family, and those are the two crucial areas. And that would only make up a small number of people. You're not talking about a lot of Mm -hmm. people. In the case of friends at the time, the key people, you know, were no more than four or five. In the case of the family, there was like no more than four or five or six. So that's the way it happened in my particular circumstance. And I suspect for a lot of other people, it would be similar.
0: Okay. I'm going to take a break in a moment, but I have to ask you this follow-up question, then we'll leave this alone. At the end of the uh, of the ride, the political ride, after you've been a, a member of the legislature and then you become the leader of the party and then you become the premier, and you were involved in very, very serious and important matters involving this country, including the charter and the constitution. At the end of it all, of the, of the political ride, was it worth it? Is it something that you would say to a young person? Yeah, think about it. Back with Brian Peckford, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, an invaluable contribute, contributor to this program. So on your blog, um, Premier, you have the great hypocrisy of how Canadians excuse Trudeau and condemn Trump. Talk to us about that.
5: Well, my uh, view of the situation as I look at it, and uh, looking at it from a Canadian perspective, I, I get very troubled when I hear uh, in my Uh, talking to regular Canadians from coast to coast, their preoccupation with the leader of the uh, United States and his troubles, and the complete uh, lack of any comment upon the troubles of our own leader in our own country. And uh, it seems to me we should, (laughs) such stuff should begin at home. Uh, And to get into it in a really serious way, the the prime minister of this country broke the conflict of interest law five times, and two of those times are under uh, the abuse of power and obstruction of justice that uh, Canadians and Americans are accusing Mr. Trump of doing, even though he has not been convicted of of all of this. In Canada, our prime minister has, a third-party ethics commissioner established by parliament, has reviewed the cases of Mr. Trudeau and found them guilty five times of breaking the law of this nation, and yet there is no penalty in the United States. If, in fact, uh, Mr. Uh, Trump is impeached by the Senate and found guilty, then he loses his job. He's gone. He's out of the the presidency altogether. In our country, our leader can break the law five times, and in, in two cases, Obstruction of justice and abuse of power, and he still holds on to power without any repercussions whatsoever. I find that startling and troubling.
0: And you know, it is uh, it is troubling, particularly when you when we know that the ethics commissioner, the parliamentary ethics commissioner Mario Dion, convicted Mr. Trudeau of the ethics violations, and now we know through Democracy Watch that there were other. Potential ethics commissioners, and Trudeau and his cabinet kept those names, and I've seen the emails, uh, and they're on the Democracy Watch website. Kept those names from the opposition parties. They only put one person forward, so it was the Mario Dion was the Liberals' choice, was Trudeau's choice, and Trudeau's choice convicted him of of, of ethics violations.
5: And and remember, the one before Dion was Mary Dawson. That's right. And Mary Dawson worked for Justin Trudeau's father, because I remember her during the constitutional debates. And I remember being part of a conference afterwards, which she attended, where I went up and said hello to her again, remembering her from the days of the patriation of the Constitution. And Mary Dawson was known by most people who have looked at her decisions to be highly partisan in Mr. Trudeau's favor and in the Liberal Party's favor, and she herself... It was very trouble, and tried, tried her darndest to seemed to me not to convict him, but in the end, had no choice but to convict him.
0: It's, uh, it's a, d- a disturbing situation, and I, I, I went through that entire election campaign, as you well know, uh, that led to October the 21st, and I kept saying to myself, and I kept saying it on the air, and I kept saying to my friends, uh, including your premier, what is going on? Yeah. Why is Trudeau Getting an essentially free ride. Yeah, he was free taking. Ride. He was raked over the coals, two or three days at a time for violations that would have gotten anybody else uh, hounded out of office. And here he is. He's back. I mean, he's he has a minority government now, and we only have ten seconds here. But he's back, and uh, and and he's behaving as though he has a majority government. Uh, and
5: most of the provisions of the Conflict of Interest Act, for which a fine applies, by the way, the fine is only up to five hundred dollars. Yeah only up to 500 that's as much as you can, but most of the convictions or most of the, uh, the violations that he made are not even subject to $500 fine.
0: Premier, we will talk again. It's always great. Thank you so much for the time today.
5: Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it.
0: All the best. Peckford42.wordpress.com is the blog site for Premier Peckford. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, democracywatch.ca. And uh, Duff joins us on the program today, and I, uh, I read your, your release earlier in the week, Duff, and, yeah. and I, just, I read it several times, and uh, then I got in touch with you right away. And, and the story here is that the Trudeau cabinet hid the names of several qualified potential federal ethics commissioners, we just heard the clip, uh, from opposition parties at the time the liberals submitted only Mario Dion's name. What's the story here?
6: Yes, and actually it goes further than that. We're still digging uh on the ethics commissioner side. They haven't disclosed any of the emails from the selection committee, which was a bunch of people uh who work for cabinet ministers and the prime minister's office. And uh, we asked for their emails, the communications between them, and which are emails that can't be hidden. Uh the public has a right to know and we've been waiting for uh two years now. And they didn't disclose any emails about the selection process or the selection committee's communications with regard to the appointment of the lobbying commissioner as well so those are also still being hidden by the trudeau cabinet two years after we requested them and two years after the public's had a right to know
0: so remind us what they did
6: well what they did was the liberals set up a a process for appointing their own ethics and lobbying watchdogs who enforce laws that apply to the trudeau cabinet and top government officials of the trudeau government and the process were, was uh, uh, internal selection committees. Everyone who uh, served on the committees could be fired by Trudeau the next day if they did something that he didn't want, and they'd have no recourse, uh, no severance or anything. Um, he, they all serve at his pleasure is the technical term. And these people came up with Mario Dion as the top choice for ethics commissioner, even though he had a record of eight very unethical actions when he was federal integrity commissioner, and this was the best guy they could find in the country, and they always said, it was the only person we could find. That's been their line for the past two years, Uh, but their line is false. There were actually five other candidates who reached the final interview stage, so obviously they were fully qualified, and we don't know who they are. Uh, Obviously, some of them may have been working elsewhere and wouldn't want to go public with this fact, but It's just a shock that Vario Dion would top out over other people, given when he was integrity commissioner, he violated whistleblowers' rights two times. The federal court found him guilty of violating whistleblowers' rights, and his job as integrity commissioner was to protect whistleblowers.
0: Somehow it seems appropriate that Trudeau did this. I I don't know. just—that just seems to be a natural flow to all of this.
6: It is a natural flow. He started out, he sent letters to ministers, He's just sent them again for the new cabinet, saying you have to maintain the highest ethical standards to enhance the public's trust in government. And they didn't walk that talk at all, right from the get-go in 2015 on. I mean, they, you know, they invited lobbyists to uh, secret, exclusive, behind-closed-doors events with cabinet ministers as long as they paid a top, uh, made a top donation. Mm-hmm. R- that was there in early of 2016. So, right after they were elected, just within months, they were out there selling access for cash to uh, cabinet ministers. And that's one <laughs> of the things that the lobbying commissioner was investigating when the Trudeau Liberals chose the lobbying commissioner. So, our case is in the Federal Court of Appeal that they were biased. They were choosing their own judges. And you can't choose your own judge. Everyone would love to choose their own judge, right? You would choose your best friend to sure. protect you from anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
6: And Cabinet ministers can't be able, uh, allowed to choose their own watchdogs. And they also didn't consult with opposition parties. The way which which that, parliamentary
0: uh, law requires.
6: Yeah, it's required by law. For both the lobbying commissioner and the ethics commissioner, they were supposed to consult. And their version of consultation was they sent one name, Mary Dion for ethics commissioner, Nancy Belanger for lobbying commissioner, gave the opposition party leaders uh, six days to respond and say, what do you think about these people? and made it very clear in the letter they sent we're appointing them no matter what you say and that's not consultation we know what consultation is the supreme court has ruled on it several times Mm -hmm. and there has to be a back and forth and there has to be full information flow and part of the full information would be that there were five other people qualified for ethics commissioner and here's their resumes and and uh... what do you think about them and who do you think we should appoint because These watchdogs uh, enforce the laws that apply to all MPs and their lobbyist friends, not just the the ruling party and the the Trudeau cabinet. So it was a totally unfair, secretive, dishonest, and unethical process because they hid a lot of information from the opposition party leaders. They've been hiding it for two years, even though the public had a right to know in the spring of of 2018 Right. right after we filed our request for this information. And here we are almost two years later. And we're we're just getting dribs and drabs coming out of them. Yeah, okay, let me
0: ask. Let me ask our listeners to go to democracywatch.ca. Democracywatch.ca. There's much more information there, including co- copies of some emails you'll find very interesting. And don't forget to make a contribution to democracywatch.ca because they don't do all of this because uh, they're wealthy. They do it because they care. Uh, Duff, we're going to have to pick out those uh, the, get those other two stories that you're working on next weekend because yep, we're literally right out of time. And they will keep you up to date. All right. Thanks, Duff. Thanks for your interest. Take All care. stuff. Conacher, co-founder of DemocracyWatch.ca. Uh, Dr. Gordon Holden is the director of the China Institute, also a professor of political science at the University of Alberta. He was recently in uh, China, led a delegation there, and uh, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Dr. Holden, thank you very much for the time. And I was checking your Twitter account, uh, at Gordon Holden, and uh, one of the first tweets that I saw from you dealt with a story in the New York Times, and it deals with China's omnivorous markets in the eye of a lethal outbreak once again. This is the uh, the uh, wildlife market, or the market in Wuhan, where we're told uh, wildlife was sold illegally. Could you put uh, a finer point on that for us, please?
7: Sure. I mean, some of it's sold illegally, much of it is sold legally, but there's three problems with it for me, and this is what brought about the SARS it turned out to be something called a civet cat, which is a, a large version of wild cat. That apparently the SARS virus jumped from that species, mutated, and, and became a human illness. That appears to have been what happened here. They don't really know for sure uh, what is the animal species, but it would have been a wild animal. Uh, so there's a health risk. Um, there's also, quite frankly, an ecological question of just China kills off too many of its limited supply of wild, of wild animals, which is the second threat. And third, Standards everywhere in China have gone up a lot. Uh, I don't appreciate those markets because the animals are often in great distress. So there's, there are three good reasons. But the one that really matters to us right now is um, a large number of multiple species of unusual animals um, are being consumed. It's a prestige thing, quite frankly. Um, if you've eaten a, a wild possum, or um, and they've even had wolf cubs, all sorts of things that one would normally contemplate eating that's seen as prestigious. So wealthy people in particular will eat those, In times of famine in Chinese past, poor people would eat them to stay alive. That's one thing, but this is mainly a prestige thing, and I, I quite frankly, I think it should be stopped. The Chinese have now said they've stopped it temporarily until they, the epidemic was gone away. I'd say stop it for good.
0: What do you suspect is going on in China as far as official circles are concerned with uh, with this virus having claimed, uh, I think, 58, maybe 60 lives in China and uh, the president, Xi Jinping, having said this is an issue of, quote, grave concern, end quote, to China? What's going on inside China?
7: Well, I think that what's happened is that while there was the epicenter of Wuhan, not a small place, 11 million, uh, put a far larger than the greater Toronto area, three times larger. It doesn't, uh, it, it appears certain that it's been moved, in had cases, in multiple Chinese cities that, that they know of. I suspect there are other people who've gone from Wuhan back to their home village. This is the time of, of the, um, precisely the time of the Chinese New Year. Hundreds of millions of people are on the move. And many people left Wuhan before the controls were put into place. And historically, you know, just even going right back to the plague in the Middle Ages, when there was news about that there was a plague, people fled to the countryside and to other places, carrying it unwittingly with them. And this, I think, is what's happened here. All these people moving. Um, Back in 2003, I was in Beijing at the embassy then and, and helping to manage the epidemic there were 20 million Chinese who traveled outside of China by air 2018 there were 150 million and there's many more people than that there'd be hundreds of millions who travel in Chinese New Year internally they probably in the range of three or four hundred million people so all that stampede of movement tells me that if you've got a virus which takes a while to uh, for symptoms to be exhibited it's probably in most large Chinese cities, although I'm certain not as intensely as in Wuhan. How
0: uh, how efficient, how effective, or maybe I should go back to the word efficient, is China's healthcare system?
7: It's come a long way. They got a real bruising in 2003 during SARS. The, the government had been lying to the people. Uh, the health minister and a political appointee. They fired him and brought in a real scientist who wasn't even a party member, and they don't usually do that. They've got some great scientists and some very good hospitals, but you start getting the numbers say in Wuhan, it's going to overwhelm whatever they've got. I mean, if you had the density of outbreak they have in Wuhan here, um, our hospitals would be packed as well. Doctors are exhausted, some have gotten sick. Um, Many people will come in with things that may just be common flu, a cold, uh, but it's not always easy to tell. You have to do testing. Uh, So I think they, in Wuhan, I think they're overwhelmed. um, They're building new facilities at an unbelievable speed. But elsewhere, I suspect they're they're absolutely crammed as well. So it's a question of capacity, really.
0: We have about a a minute left. Um, What would you say to Canadians who are perhaps thinking of traveling to China at this time?
7: Well, again, I know I've said one shouldn't put off travel to China if you have a good reason to go. This wouldn't be my favorite time to go. I'd be tempted to say, unless it's truly urgent, to wait a few weeks. These epidemics have a time frame which isn't necessarily measured in weeks, maybe a couple months. I would say put your travel off if you can. Uh, If you do go have scrupulous hygiene, and buy some masks. The problem is, it's not that easier said than done. Most masks even in Canada have been swept up mm-hmm. by individuals who are concerned who are traveling. So I would say maybe this is the time and that's not the official advice of the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I almost always say, follow their advice. In this instance, I would say postpone non essential travel. That's okay. my personal view. Or,
0: Professor Holden, thank you so much for the time. Uh, You came on uh, very quickly after I asked you a little while ago. So appreciate the perspective and the time. Thank you.
7: You're very kind. Thank you.
0: All the best. Professor uh, Gordon Holden from the University of Alberta, the director of the China Institute and a professor of political science, understands China extremely well, has spent quite a bit of time there and was there recently. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear something in my headphones while I'm on the air. Someone will say something to me, and normally you don't interrupt when someone's speaking. So it's of significance when uh, the studio lets me know something is happening while I'm speaking about something else, and I got one of those interruptions uh, about half an hour ago, about 40 minutes ago, and uh, the message was Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash and just about took my breath away. Uh, forty-one years of age, NBA superstar. You've seen him uh, play against the Raptors. You've seen him, of course, uh, in Los Angeles for for years. The uh, uh, this is one of the absolute great favorites. Words escape me. I'm mean, I'm just absolutely in shock here. Uh, Greg Brady joins us, sports longtime sports broadcaster in Toronto, also with our chorus radio station AM six forty. Greg, it is one of those moments where you you say forty-one years of age, or everything that he's achieved, such a tremendous. Player how could this happen how could this be
1: Absolutely Roy yeah there's so many complexities also to the Kobe story given the chapters he went through uh, never played college basketball right out of high school wasn't a you know uh, wasn't a prodigy like LeBron James was so a lot of his success uh, you know being picked near the bottom of the top 10 he was still going to be projected to be a good player and then of course the and I'm putting it mildly, um, uh underselling it, the legal trouble with a, a sexual assault and rape allegation. He was fighting in a courtroom, um, guilty or innocent, for for his very freedom, let alone staying an NBA player. Um, resuscitated his image after that case was, uh, tra- charges were dropped and that case was settled out of court and and he kept his marriage together. But you're right. There's so many layers of complexity. He had just gotten into the concept of maybe owning an NBA team someday. He was still very much on the scene and only retired for the last few years. Um, and uh, you might have spotted this, but just in case, uh, just in case you hadn't, TMZ's reporting that his oldest daughter, who's 13 years old, who they called Gigi uh, of his four daughters, was on that plane. Uh, oh, no. That's an initial report, but TMZ had this one first had it accurate, uh, they may have this one accurate as well, so it just that'll leave you more speechless, it leaves me kind of yeah. speechless, um, and it compounds the, the utter tragedy that this is to uh, to a family, but also to a sporting icon.
0: And, and to a league uh, and, and you know mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant has had his supporters and his detractors but nobody can argue that he was just an amazing, amazing athlete and a great basketball player, and brought a lot of success uh, to Los Angeles, to the Lakers, and to the NBA.
1: Well, I, I think you hit on something there. The success of the league, which is never guaranteed, um, you know. I think we've seen the NFL go through peaks and valleys of popularity. Uh, the NHL, you know, fights to get on that on that relevancy in the on the sports scene because we have more channels now. We have more sports accessible to us. This isn't thirty years ago. Look at the struggles the C F L has to get on people's radar that it never had uh, thirty years ago. So. You hit on something. Michael Jordan retired. Roy, end of uh, the '98 season, uh, the Bulls had won another three straight titles. But when he walked away and Scottie Pippen played somewhere else, we all wondered, well, who are the next superstars? Well, it was Kobe Bryant, uh, teaming up with Shaquille O'Neal in LA, and you were kind of either for them or against them. Kobe won five NBA titles um, and won two of them without Shaq beside him, but. They really, along with LeBron James, and along with a few other players, subsequently, right, the Steph Curry's of the world, um, it, the, all the Golden State players, and, and now we have also Kawhi Leonard. I think in that mix, we said, who are the superstars going to be? Who are people going to gravitate mm-hmm. to? And you're never quite sure because we'd all say, well, there's not going to be another Wayne Gretzky, right? And then and and the Mario Lemieux, and then and then Sidney Crosby's come along, and Connor McDavid's come along, and, and leagues move on. But the league wasn't sure how popular it could remain after 1998, when Michael retired, and to your point, Roy, it's it's more popular than ever, and it's it's got more TV rights than ever, and it's got more people globally uh, watching. The, I mean, look, two players, including the Raptors' Pascal Siakam, are named to the Eastern Conference All-Star team, and they're from Cameroon. Like, that was an unthinkable concept, unthinkable 20 years ago, and Kobe increasing the brand of basketball globally is a big reason that, that those things are possible now.
0: And and you know, for those of us uh, when we get to a certain age, we may even be older than the than the retired players. But they become icons not only for the sport, but in our lives. We identify certain times in our lives with what these athletes have accomplished, or uh, you know, an NBA championship, or if you will, an NHL a Stanley Cup championship. It it coincides with a moment in our lives, and the uh, and, and the players who made that happen remain iconic in our own personal life's experience.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that sums it up pretty acutely because you also think you know for for kids growing up who who you know if Kobe Bryant was was playing along with Shaquille O'Neal and you were 10 or 11 or 12 you, you tend to remember the athletes of your youth when you get older and and some dive deeper into sports but some grow kind of distant from sports right life gets in the way you can't yes. watch games as closely you can't pore over statistics like you used to and uh but but Kobe kind of I think LeBron has transcended that. I'm sure Michael Jordan and Larry Bird transcended that. Magic Johnson certainly did. Look how his career was, was cut short uh, with HIV. And and Kobe is also, you know, Kobe deserves to be, you know, in that conversation in terms of uh, the impact. And, and, again, you know, right. to circle it back to the, the personal front, you're just looking, going, what, what a complex person. Not unlike Tiger Woods. Not unlike... Lance Armstrong, where you got to weigh a lot of pros and cons in in people's in people's lives, and right. we sometimes some people can shut it off how someone is personally, and they just care about the player and the icon and and what what they do for their particular team. Yep. But for some, it's it's not as easy. So okay. it, it's unbelievable that we're talking about him in the past tense right now, Roy, but. Yeah, at 41, Kobe Bryant leaves uh, You know, leaves a really complicated legacy. Right. I think the saddest part beyond the person.
0: Greg, I'm sorry. I have to, I have to jump he in like here. He he
1: had a lot more to do in basketball. He yeah. looked like he did.
0: Thank you so much for spending the time with us and uh, providing that perspective. Really appreciate it. Awful day. Uh, difficult to absorb. It'll take some time. Thanks, Greg. Roy, great pleasure. Thank you. All the you. best. Greg Brady, who you can hear on uh, our chorus radio station in Toronto, AM 640.